Welcome to Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, this is basically our second, well, no, this is our first podcast of the of the new year. Last one was December 28th, so that was the last one of last year. So uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. Uh, had some questions that have been backing up for a while, and, you know, I'm probably going to get away from the politics a little more this year i there's so many other commentaries sometimes i just can't help myself it's it's so ridiculous like when you have the person in charge of disposing the hazardous nuclear waste rods turns out to be some sort of weird transvestite who's stealing suitcases out of airports that contain women's clothing so that it can put them on and 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 prance around you know there are certain things like that you just can't ignore you know and you know the funny part about it is the democrats who, who are who are the worst people going i mean they were all totally okay with this clown um until he started stealing <laughs> you know, i mean if he'd just gone out and bought the clothes that guy would still have his job all he had to do is put a credit card on the counter and uh, go into uh, what is that place? Victoria's Secret, buy all the buy all the lingerie he wanted and underwear he wanted, and uh, nobody would have said boo to him. You know, it was just the the, uh, the the fact that they didn't want to defend theft, but they're willing to defend every other perverted, quirky, nasty part of this guy. But anyway, um, to get back to the point gonna try to stay away from some of that i mean if any person any thinking person knows what we have in washington right now they just know everybody knows what kind of people they are you know and and the the secrets they hide (laughs) paul pelosi and the male who attacked him at his house when nancy wasn't there you know i mean everybody knows that this is sordid, torrid, horrible. Everybody knows what Washington is. We've created a mess. And uh, I'm not sure we can vote our way out of it. I mean, we tried in 2016. And what has happened is now there's been a backlash. And the the, uh, establishment is firmly in control to the point where they're rigging elections. The establishment... And the Republican establishment will go along with rigging an election for a Democrat rather than an outsider. And you watch these people who are standing up to McCarthy because they know who and what he is. They're going to get squashed one by one. I guarantee it. Uh, Two years from now, you won't see them in the Congress anymore because they'll get crushed. They'll get they'll get squeezed out. And. uh, if anybody who thinks that makes our country better is is a fool, is just a fool. Um, you know, politicians are, are, you know, the career politicians are idiots. And, and frankly, I'm done talking to them and about them. Um, they lie. They, they promise everything till they get elected. Then it's business as usual, backroom deals. And, and uh, there are gun owners out there who say, well, you know, but it's okay. They'll look out for us, and I don't really care what else they do. 
Well, if you think they won't sell you down the river like happened in 1994, courtesy of Bob Dole, selling us down the river, if you think they won't sell us down the river like they did last year, you know, now that the law didn't really have any teeth in it, but still they sold us down the river. If you don't think they're going to sell us down the river on braces and binary triggers and, and all this stuff that really doesn't matter, they're going to sell us down the river on that, just like they sold us down the river on bump stocks. You know, I don't like bump stocks. I think they're stupid. But I don't think they should be prejudicially made illegal by by just basically uh, uh, executive order or any kind of government, you know, declaration. Because frankly, you know, all that stuff was manufactured with the ATF saying A-OK. Same thing with the uh, braces. My answer to the ATF is F you. You said this was okay. It's not going to be not okay anymore. And the problem is that there are a whole bunch of states still where you cannot have an SBR. So their little answer of, well, just register it as an SBR. Um, that, that works for some people, but not for others. So anyway, uh, we're just going to kind of get away from that. And we're going to go into an expanded Q&A. And as always, uh, if you have any questions, comments, or anything that you'd like to communicate to us, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, or you can send them and put them on the comments section of Podbean. So I do have to tell you, I'm still kind of in the, the latter recovery mode from the COVID attack I suffered, courtesy the the red plague, the red plague attack, courtesy the Chicoms, um, you know. So it's it's uh, I'm in the dry cough phase where you have that for a couple weeks afterwards, usually three to four weeks afterwards. I haven't been contagious for probably th almost three weeks now, but you know, COVID is out there, and you know what the 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 part of it is. You know, I was bedridden for two weeks, basically. Yeah, I could I could get up and go to the bathroom, and I could get up and eat, but boy, I tell you, I was I spent most of my time flat on my back and in bed because I was just I was just wiped out. This was not a pleasant experience, and um, I understand that once you get it, then if you subsequently get it, it's it's a lot less. But um, I you can still hear it in my voice. You can still hear it in my voice a little bit that that kind of that dry cough a little bit of not really congestion but uh, it's unlike anything I've ever had before unlike anything I've ever had before and I've had flus and, and everything so you know be careful out there um, I was totally complacent I thought since I had the jabs and uh, since I hadn't gotten it and since it's kind of fallen off the news I, I wasn't even thinking and the fact of the matter is uh, that's when it gets you. So from my personal uh, experience, I would say that I don't think the jabs help one little bit. Because there's no way, and, and, and you know, the, the first lie that was told about it was, oh, you know, you're, you're, 
it's a vaccine. You're inoculated. You, you won't get it. Oh, okay, great. Then it's like, when that pr- proved to be a lie, uh, they said, well, you know, if you do get it, your, your symptoms are going to be so much more mild and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Then it's like, you know, in order to keep up your level of protection, you got to get the boosters. All of that turned, in my particular case, turned out to be a lie. An effing lie. Because I had a severe case. I I was at the point where about four days in, and it's all a blur, but I had a temperature of 101. Uh, my blood was oxygenating just above the level where I needed to be hospitalized. Um, none of the stuff I was taking was doing really anything, except the ibuprofen, just keeping the aches down. But there's no way that that I you can definitely prove that, well, if you hadn't had the jabs, it would have been a lot worse. I, I was there, and I, like I said, three, day, three, four days into it, I said, you know, I can probably go another three or four days, and then I'm, I'm going to have nothing left. I could just feel the strength just draining from my body. And I'm like, this is, this is horrible. This is serious. This is horrible and serious. And the stuff they told me that was going to protect me, or at least mostly mitigate this infection, turned out to be horse shit. And I think they knew it was horse shit all along. And I think Fauci is out to protect his little Chicom friends who were trying to weaponize something and it and it escaped. It escaped their lab and it's inflicted this on the world. The other thing I think is that there should be a murder trial for one each Andrew Cuomo that ugly big schnoz pig who was the governor of New York who put people that had COVID in with our most vulnerable population and that is people in old folks homes and that's why it went through and just killed killed them you know just like insects I mean it just wiped out a bunch of those putting them in to an old folks home our most vulnerable population that is not just stupid that is not just negligent that is something heinous and that that should be uh, first or second degree murder um, without doubt and you know if he got capital punishment and uh, got his neck stretched I would say yeah good for it that's what he deserves he's a pig but anyway, let's get away from that. All I'm saying is be careful out there. It's still out there. And uh, if it gets you, regardless of the precautions you've had, if it's, if it's like my case, that's it. Now, I re- now, I'm free now. I can actually, you know, saying all these things, not that I didn't say them before because I did, but the Google Tards and the bedwetting communist homosexual crack smoking, rap singing, turds that run Google and YouTube um, can't suppress that. You know, they're the other worst people on the planet. They've been altering and suppressing very, very sensitive information just for their own political aims. And that is a crime also. So the Google tards 
and the U pubes, they need to go. They need to go on. Uh, they need to go on trial too, because anybody who's had this and has had the jabs like I've had um, will tell you that uh, all that pro-vaccine propaganda doesn't seem to be worth much. But it's up to you whether you take it or not. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disrespect anybody for taking it. Uh, I was compelled to take it. I was at that eight, that that point where, hey, if you want to work, you got to get the deal. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. Um, you know, I'm I'm not afraid of vaccines. I'm really not. I'm not an anti-vax person. I actually think that you know our public health, a vaccination program against a lot of things, are good for the public health. But you know, I also realize, hey, some of these things have side effects, and if it's the COVID vaccine, it probably isn't nearly as effective as they wanted us to believe. They, again, lied to us. And for that, they should be held accountable. Biden and his crew, in spite of all their other crimes, in spite of the influence peddling and all the crimes, um, they need to be held accountable for that. So let's go into questions and answers because I like talking about gun stuff a lot better than I like talking about the other stuff. Here is... It's not much of a question, really, but it, it, it kind of is thought-provoking. Is there any possibility of a new military revolver being adopted by any military service anywhere? Okay. I, I would say no. I would say for the last hundred years, military revolvers have been kind of substitute standard. Um, the... And, and I will say the Luger and the 1911, um, you know, they, they shut the door on military revol- revolver. The only reason they've been used at all after World War One was sent essentially a supply issue. And do we have enough of the, of the semi-automatics? And when we don't, they issue revolvers. And the only kind of country that, that kind of overcame that was Germany. You know, they didn't really use revolvers. Uh, in the Second World War, they used a lot of 32s and 380s, and and their their substitute standard pistols were usually smaller automatics. Whereas the United States had our 1917 revolvers, which we used in both world wars. Um, Britain hung on steadfastly to the Webley, which was probably a huge mistake. And then, really, since that time, it's just been surplus revolvers. Uh, the aforementioned Webley in uh, all the kind of Commonwealth or former colonies. Um, the, there were purchases of revolvers um, for a lot of secondary duties in the United States, plant guards, you know, and police still use them up until the early 80s. Or actually, I should say the late 80s. And even the Air Force had this Smith & Wesson, you know, Model 15 uh, that they're the Air Force uh, security police used. Uh, I remember into the 90s seeing uh, still Smith & Wesson Victory models being carried by Army aviators. So, you know, there's always been kind of that niche uh, for them. But really, um, you know, what is it that mitigates against a military revolver? Uh, number one, it's capacity. Number two, it's the usually... There are exceptions, but usually they take revolver cartridges 
And so it's not compatible with anything else. It's not like, well, I have a submachine gun that's a 9mm. No one's going to develop a 9mm revolver to be a companion arm with that or a sidearm because you can get a 9mm semi-automatic pistol. So all those things are, are really pretty, uh, they mitigate against it. Capacity, again, is the biggest one. And another one is just in this day and age, just cost a revolver cost there's a reason a cold python costs about three times or four times what a smith and wesson m&p does you know i mean there's a reason for that <laughs> i mean it just there it's you know we can now make semi-automatic pistols out of you know with largely plastic frames and you know in some cases they use plastic sights and and all that and they're just good enough for military use so there you go so it's going to be capacity cost uh, the 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 other kind of the social or yeah I guess it's more of a social uh, obstacle is it's looked upon as very old technology no military service wants to go backwards they just don't want to adopt an old weapon especially a weapon that was effectively you know obsolete in their in their eyes a hundred years ago now do the like kind of like the kimber and ruger and and you know some of the smith and wesson revolvers can they give great service oh yeah they'd be great there are scenarios where a revolver would be an outstanding thing to have but i don't think there's enough of those to justify that that one would ever be developed or an existing one would ever be adopted so no. Here's a related question. Uh, can break top revolvers make a comeback? Um, I would say no. And here's why. Number one, the number one problem with break top revolvers is not strength. I think it's aesthetics. They look clunky. They look obsolete. They don't look like a modern cool gun you know they just don't uh, just the way they have to be built um i don't know the one has ever successfully been chambered for a magnum cartridge i suppose it could be but you know again the engineering and everything you'd have to put into place is is just too immense to create something that not everybody wants and, and you know what? I, the reason you know not, not everybody wants it is, um, I think it's Huberti. Yeah, it's Huberti has made a Smith and Wesson Schofield copy for probably twenty-five or thirty years now, and and those things, they're number one, they're expensive, and number two, they don't fly off the shelves, and number three, you put that next to a Colt single-action army, and which is the better-looking gun? And people like better-looking guns people like um you know it's like cars people like nice looking cars that's why they spend millions and millions of dollars designing ones that that look good um and they fail sometimes <laughs> what was that one the nissan cube yeah yeah pontiac aztec yeah sometimes they fail horribly but uh with guns you know it's it's like the old joke life's too short to shoot an ugly gun most people don't want to 
pay a lot of money for something that looks ugly to them. And those, those revolvers tend to look clunky and ugly. Um, their big advantage, or their big advertised advantage, is that, hey, you open it up and it automatically ejects all the, the cartridges and it's easy to load. Uh, that's easier said than done. Easier said than done. I think the swing-out cylinder is fast. And, you know, face it, reloading, whether it's a swing-out cylinder or a brake top, um, is not nearly as, as easy as reloading a semi-automatic pistol. So, you know, that's, that's where you are. Um, do I... Do I kind of like, for nostalgia reasons, the, the old Smith & Wesson brake tops? Yeah, yeah, for nostalgia reasons, it's great. But there's a lot of people. The people who drive the gun market are not the nostalgia people necessarily. We drive certain segments of it, and we can get something like retro ARs, um, guns that are used in cowboy action shooting. Uh, there's... There is a lever action guns, you know, rifles. There, there are some, there are, there is a nostalgic component, but it really doesn't drive the market. It's, it's a, it's a smaller niche that kind of, uh, uh, goes along with it. So, um, people who usually the, 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 the real high dollar, big dollar, um, volume sales in guns are, are people just looking for a tool and you know they're they're not looking for some niche the the average guy buying an AR is not looking for a retro AR he's looking for you know the flat top and and all the rest of it the modern stuff so no they will never make a comeback and in fact there's there's really no impetus to to do that and and again why would you want to Okay, opinion on big bore ARs, and I'm assuming it's like 458 SOCOM and, oh God, what's the other one, uh, 50 Beowulf and all that. I've been intrigued by those, especially the 50 Beowulf. I think that's so cool. But here's what turns me off about big bore ARs is, there's well, there's two things. There, there's several things. Um number one is the cost of the gun is going to be a lot <laughs> they, they cost a lot um and a lot is of course subjective but i think you're you're really going to be into some of these things for at least 1500 two grand it's a lot of money um and i'm talking about the ones that are kind of built on the ar-15 not the AR. well some of those may be built on the ar-10 i don't know you know the ar-10 and 762 nato um, is is not wildly popular and it's really a nice well-balanced gun I mean Brownells I don't know if they still they make at least one model of it I think still but the retro the, you know the AR-10 was a very cool gun you start getting down into these other calibers and you have two two associated problems okay so we have cost and then we have two other problems one is parts breakage um, the system was never designed to handle other things other than 556-like cartridges. So you're going to have some problems potentially with parts breakage if you shoot it enough. Now, the, pro the reason that that probably doesn't rear its head as much as people think is because they don't shoot it enough because the ammo is so horribly expensive. Um, 
you know, go buy go buy a thousand rounds of five five six, and then I don't even think you can buy a thousand rounds of fifty Beowulf. Um, if you do, I'm sure it costs like four times as much, maybe five times as much. Um, it, it's ridiculous. It, it's you're not going to shoot it a lot. So therefore, you have a gun that you already are not going to shoot very much, and in fact, you know the, you know you hate to say it, but after 60 years, the 5.56 AR is just refined. It's so refined, and and it's so well known that basically anybody can can make a good one, and the only ones that are crappy. Are really the ones that uh, you know they, they're still flirting with these stupid polymer lowers and all that other nonsense that's all garbage you know just go get a good basic AR and you know even if it's Anderson you know people talk a, talk a lot of crap about Anderson but hey um, there's nothing wrong with them there is nothing wrong with them um, you know check it out make sure that doesn't mean that everyone coming off the line is probably perfect, but you can get nice Smith and Wesson M&P is an excellent, excellent AR-15, and uh, so you know I would, I just tend to to go more towards those, the bigger ones. If I need a larger caliber, am I really gonna do I do I need it in an AR-15? And the answer is well I don't. I don't need it in an AR-15. Um, I don't shoot that much large. This, the large caliber stuff I shoot is really just kind of black powder cartridge, which effectively has some of the same performance at these things. And and frankly, you know, I just don't see a reason for it. Why go into another caliber, a huge expense? And even if you hand load it, none of nothing about these big bore ARs is cheap. The the only ones that make sense to me are in places where you're allowed to use the straight wall cartridge for hunting. And those, you know, that that's that's basically required by regulation. It is enabled and required by by the local hunting regulations. So, you know, if that's what you need, that's what you need and and you know, go with that. But no, I'm not a I'm not a fan of the big bore ARs. I you know, what are you hunting with it the, where you wouldn't be served just as well with, say, a bolt-action hunting rifle? And, you know, nobody can really answer. I've never, I've never actually, because I don't mess with them, I've never actually done this. But it would be interesting to know how well some of these calibers, energy-wise and and everything else just stack up against 7.62 NATO or 30-06. You know, it'd, it'd be interesting to know. My gut feeling is that 7.62 NATO will deliver most of what people are looking for. So, and that's a lot less expensive than some of these other calibers. But it is cool to have a 50 caliber anything, and a 50 caliber AR is cool, and going from there. So that's what I think about those. What, another question, what is the ideal time for a country to adopt a new service rifle? Well, I don't know. I think this question was generated from the, God, what do they call it now? The 6.8 by 51. 
Well, I don't know what the ideal time is, but I do know when the bad times are. So I'll start with them. Um, the worst time to do it is during a conflict because there's already so much pressure on the training, the force generation training you know hey you're bringing in new people you're expanding the size of your military you you're expanding your ground troops introducing new weapons then is hard i mean uh it's very hard because you got to find people who know what they're doing your cadre you know your experienced soldiers may not you know they're just like anybody else this is new to them too so um during a, a conflict, it's it's very difficult to introduce uh, a new cartridge. Uh, it's been done. Uh, the Japanese did it with a 7.7. Not a huge change, but it was still a different caliber. And it wasn't a completely new rifle. So uh, that, that went, you know, pretty much, I don't know what kind of ammunition problems that had because their logistics were a mess anyway. So... Um, you know that that happened the Italians tried it with a 7.35 and had to abandon it they just you know when three-quarters or or 90 percent of your factories are set up to produce 6.5 rifles and 6.5 ammo uh, you changing over just doesn't make sense because your requirements for small arms are expanding so the Italians tried it and abandoned it um, the French tried it in between the wars and wound up having to... Now, they weren't in World War II that long as far as, you know, mainland France is concerned, but they were using a lot of 8mm Lebel stuff. So, uh, that was a... That was a big deal, you know. I mean, they never quite got over to, to 7.5. They, they did it after World War II, but... Um, they would have probably preferred to have that all completely in place and, and rolling uh, before the war. Uh, the Germans, obviously, seven, or it's not seven, eight by 33. Um, yeah, that they did that fairly successfully. Uh, 5.56 and M16A1 in Vietnam had some initial bumps, but it, it effectively um, happened. Uh, so, you know, during a conflict is the hardest time. The next hardest time, I think, is the next worst time is right after a conflict, fighting the last war with your, <laughs> with, you know, using the experience for your new rifle as being your last war and not a projected uh, future requirement. So that's how you wind up with an M14 and FNFAL and 7.62 NATO battle rifles uh, going into the uh, early and mid part of the Cold War. That's how you. That's how you get there. You get there because you have very successful rifles, battle rifles, and you say, you know what? We want to keep the good. There, there's good here, and we want to keep that. So you bring that over into your next generation of weapons, not realizing that the battlefield has changed and that tactics and a few other things are going to make it so that maybe the good you see in your previous rifles is not going to be good for the future. 
So, you know, basing it and, and this 270, 277 Fury slash 6.8 6 by 51. You know, that, that seems like it's reeking out of the, out of the uh, global war on terror. And there were two, two items. Now, what the people who probably never served will tell you is, well, it's just long range shooting. Everybody claps about that. There's some truth to that. But another truth is when you're talking about vehicle borne IEDs, v, v bids, you know, um, cars that are stuffed with explosives that drive into a checkpoint or, dri or drive into a convoy or something, um, the 556 just wasn't stopping those, whether it's coming from M4 carbines or the M249 squad automatic weapon. Um, 762 NATO did a much better job in disabling and you know stopping the car better than the lighter intermediate cartridge so I think that's driving a lot of it too and uh, I don't know if the next conflict we're going to be in you could easily say if you went back to the jungle or you went to closed terrain or somewhere else um 5.56 is still a very hard gun to beat. So I would I would say that 5.56 may surface as the new solution to the new problem. But that's, you know, that's it. You can't use your old fighting the last war over again and say, man, if we had a weapon that just did this, it would have been better. Uh, that might not help you in the future. So that's another bad time to do it. Uh, trying to think of uh, any other things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, I would say that if you're going... I would say that the, um, the, best, the best example of when to adopt a new service rifle had to be, you know, go through the uh, Garand, John C. Garand in the 20s. And he, you know, he developed his rifle, developed it into the 30s, had to do a caliber change, but was able to do that. And so his rifle, even though it did have a few teething problems at the beginning, was very developed. It was in production and it was ready to go for World War II, basically. There were still a lot of Springfields being used in the early part of the war, but the Garand was, was basically there. So... I think it's pretty interesting that, um, you know, that was probably the best way to introduce a new service rifle is you have that interwar period and you actually develop it and go, um, you know, but the, the saving grace was that, hey, it was the same caliber. So you didn't have a change in caliber where now I've got old ammunition that's different than my new ammunition. So it's uh, um, definitely, definitely interesting. But changing, not changing the caliber definitely simplifies things. But when you change both, um, it's a pretty rough road to go down. So that's an interesting question. Okay, here's another question. What do you think of the RTI imports from Ethiopia? Well, I mean, you have to, you have to use your brain on this one. First of all... Uh, they want high prices and they're, they're apparently for the most part getting them um, they did have some 
you know, pretty unique guns. Um, unique insofar as their 30 caliber carbines were in kind of World War II configuration with the flip sight, no bayonet lug. So that that was pretty that was pretty good. They, you know, that, they're original. They were never rearsenaled and quote upgraded quote unquote with the fully adjustable rear sight and the bayonet lug. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, there were also a lot of unusual guns that we don't see in the states. They're rare. They're not necessarily high priced, but they're rare just because we don't see the models here. And what was it? Kropacek rifles and and Berdan rifles from from Russia. You know stuff like that. Uh, there was there was a, a population of that because apparently the Ethiopians just filled the crates and shipped them, and you know they weren't really caring what what was going in there. Was, you know old bolt action rifles all look like old bolt action rifles. Uh, a lot of 98Ks, apparently. Of course, the, the Carcanos have been on the market forever. And and all that. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Um, there's parts kits for automatic weapons on the... on the... Uh, um, that they've had. But the the truth of the matter is, you're getting a firearm that's been in... I'll say neglectful storage in Ethiopia for 50 or 60 years. So what do you think it's going to look like? Um, I don't know that the Ethiopians have a culture of taking care of firearms. It's not like the stuff that was coming out of Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union, where there was a whole uh, architecture of arsenals and storage and you know they would put this they would they would basically uh, uh, rebuild these rifles put them away you know cover them with cosmoline put them in storage and then hey when the the government changed it's like hey these things were just money in the bank and they just sold them uh, these other ones have probably been stored without the without the benefit of cosmoline they were probably just thrown into what I would imagine would be um, storage containers and left for decades um, and and of course you get worm rot and and everything else on the stocks they're all dried out they're you know some of the the rifles when they went in since there was no re kind of arsenal rebuild program these things are missing parts um, there's a lot of different types of rifles so some of the parts got mixed up I was reading one thing where <laughs> Guys, he bought a Mauser 98 from them, and it didn't work very well, and he couldn't figure out why. And then the gunsmith said, well, it's got some Mauser 96 parts in the bolt here. As soon as we swap those out, it'll work just fine, and it did. So you, you've got all of that. You don't have the expertise of armorers who were, you know, whose job it was to, you know, put these guns into, to repair them, uh, refurbish them, and put them into long-term storage. So, you know, you have to, you have to be... An adult and say what am I really buying and you have to face the facts and you know RTI has got a reputation for saying hey so this is in very good condition and to us it looks like scrap metal so you know that the truth is out there with a lot of import stuff and I will tell you this I will pay 50 bucks more if I can actually go look at it before I buy it. Um, you know, if I can go look at it, then I'm going to be a lot happier 
<laughs> or if I got you know two or three I can choose from, it's even better. If you just pay them their you know their bargain basement price, and they ship it to you, um, you know you're gonna get what you get. You get what you get. So uh, you know buyer beware. Um, I think some people got nice M1 carbines out of it, or decent M1 carbines. I don't know if they were really nice, but decent. Um, and there were some, definitely some rare rifles, or I should say scarce, rare, you know, stuff we don't really see. There was some of that. But other than that, it's, it's, they're, they're, it's a harsh part of the world with harsh weather, harsh heat, and and a culture which really wasn't designed there there was no there's nothing there to uh really maintain or preserve those weapons they were just tossed in so you get what you get so that's what i think about the rti imports um there's nothing in there in pristine condition that's for sure okay next question oh it's kind of related what is your favorite what is your personal favorite service rifle well that it is without doubt the M1 Grand, with without any question, without even thinking about it, I love the M1 rifle. I love the way it looks. I love the way it performs. I love the sights on it. Um, I even like the way it loads. I like. I, I think the eight round. And most people will never say this. They'll say it's a, it's a uh, um, detractor or a con. But I will say, the eight round end block clip was genius. For the war we had to fight in World War II, it was genius, sheer genius. And uh, I like it. I love shooting it. I don't shoot it enough. I don't shoot the M1 rifle enough. And uh, maybe that's a good resolution for this for this new year. But to me, the M1 rifle, it, I you know, I know everything has come later, and I do enjoy FALs and M14s and other things. But it is. The M1 is the greatest battle implement ever devised, and uh, I think it it was it was exactly the right rifle at exactly the right time, and it's it's my personal favorite. I just if I had to get rid of everything, if I could, you know, I hate these questions because they're always such horseshit. But um, if you can only keep one, what would you keep? Well, it'd be an M1 rifle, that's for sure. Okay, is the 7.35 Carcano as good as some content creators say? I think I know who you're talking about there. Um, you know, if you look on it, there's some videos. Um, theoretically, it's it's outstanding, and and the uh, it's it's the forgotten weapons when he does one on the Carcano, then he shoots one in a two gun match and finds that the reality. And the theoretical, you know, as they say, theoretically even communism works. Well, in this case, the theoretical advantages of the Carcano just kind of weren't there. Um, it had some good points, but it was not the panacea um, that it was expected to be. I, I think the, the Carcano action has always been a little bit rough, a little bit, I don't want to say sloppy, but it's not as well designed or as thought out um, as the 98K. Uh, the 98K, a lot of people just kind of take it for granted, but as a bolt-action, effectively a bolt-action carbine, it's an excellent rifle. It's got a lot of excellent qualities to it. 
7.35, the only good thing I can say is it's got a very, it's almost an intermediate cartridge. And in fact, I, I've never I've never done this because I'm not a chronograph guy, but I bet a 7.65 Carcano and an AK are pretty close. Uh, I bet that in real world, they're pretty close. Um, if you're shooting at steel out to 300 yards, I bet they're, they, they seem identical. So that's what I would, uh, that's what I would say. I, I would say that it's, it's, it was an interesting, a very interesting approach to a problem that they identified, which was 6.5 just wasn't the killer that they, that they wanted. It just wasn't effective. Japanese had the same problem. Um, 6.5 just wasn't making it. So they went up to 30 caliber and the Japanese effectively kind of, well, it's not a nice thing to say, but they basically copied the 303 British in a rimmed and rimless version, one for machine guns and the other for rifles. And, um, you know, it's a, it, it was, it was a much more effective weapon for them. Um, the Italians tried it and just, just couldn't get the, you know, just couldn't get the manufacturing going. So, um, you know, they, they had a, they had a swing and a miss on the rifles, but I, to give the Italians credit, they had a, they had a solid, a solid double with the Beretta 1934, one of my favorite guns. One of my favorite wartime pistols is the Beretta Beretta 34. I don't know why, but it, it feels good in the hand. They shoot well for close range. Um, reasonably powerful for their size. You could use it as both a service pistol and a, um, what do you call it, um, a concealment kind of pistol. Eh, it did, did a lot, did a lot. So I like the 34. So they had the, a swing and a miss with the rifle, but a definite hit with a pistol. Okay, next question. Why is the M1A, M14 not more popular? Um, there's several reasons. Number one is it's been dissed out by the new gun crowd. It used to be that that was the pinnacle. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, everybody was talking trash about the AR. You couldn't, if you said anything positive about an AR, you would get just just excoriated but um and the m1a and the slash m14 were held as the pinnacle the perfect rifle i i think the realization came around that that um it while as good as it was it it really wasn't the modern solution that it needed to be but it did everything it was ever asked to do and it did it very well uh the reason it's not more popular today is um, it looks old-fashioned as far as the stock goes. Um, it is difficult to mount optics on. Uh, the safety is very old-fashioned where your finger has to be inside the trigger guard, which is an anathema to modern trainers and, and modern users. Uh, those are about the biggest ones. I mean, I, th I think you could find other reasons, but those are the biggest reasons. Um, and it's expensive and it's 7.62 NATO which is also expensive and somewhat not really out of fashion but not nearly as popular as 5.56 so that's that's the reason um, 
I personally think that for a person looking for a all-around, I can kill the biggest things, and I can kill bad guys, and I think an M1A is a very, very excellent rifle day. Definitely worth considering. But again, um, you know, an AR-10 flat top is going to be easier to mount optics on. So there you go. It's next question. Are the 30 carbine and the 5.7 by 28 considered intermediate cartridges? Um, my... My take on them is, is that they're, if, if you want to consider them intermediate cartridges because of the types of weapons that are chambered for them, I would say that they are low-end intermediate cartridges. You know, hey. Um, you know, that's just kind of, the, kind, of the way it, kind of the way it breaks, you know. It's just kind of the way it works. It's sort of like you know, uh, twenty-five twenty or thirty-two twenty. Are they, are they pistol caliber carbine cartridges? Well, yeah, they are, but they're they're kind of at the low end of the power. Uh, Thirty carbine, you know, the pistols that came out for it came out after the millions of carbines M1 carbines were made. You know, they, whether you want to consider them a new class of weapon like the PDW or you could put them as pistol caliber carbines, but they're really, they're really a little bit more powerful than pistol caliber carbines, but they're not near the kind of power that uh, um, most intermediate cartridges we come to expect from them. So they're they're at the lower end. They're they're right in between the two. So uh, that's that's really it. I don't know that it's really important to categorize anything. I mean. Um, I just don't know that it's important at all. So that's where I am with all that. Okay, next question. Are milled AKs better than stamped AKs? Um, the answer is no. Uh, milled AKs were, and, and there have been, there've been a whole bunch of them out and around, but the original milled AKs were because in the early AK-47 production, they tried stamped receivers. They didn't work out so well, in spite of the fact that they they had their hands on some German arm maker arms makers that had made the uh, STG-44. But they couldn't get it to work for a while, so they went to milled. Um, in the United States, a milled receiver is always considered higher quality, even though it's heavier and clunkier. Um, I don't know that you'd ever wear one out. Uh, I don't think they even, they never even tried. I do know that the Tula factory, when they went to the AKM, um, basically said that a stamped receiver AK would last a minimum of 330,000 rounds. Now, 330,000 rounds is a lot of ammo. Um, if you're paying... 200, let's just say you're paying $250 per thousand rounds of ammo because you're getting a bulk discount. I think 330,000 rounds comes out to $82,000 worth of ammunition. Something like that. So, you know, I, I mean, who's going to fire $80,000 worth of ammunition out of their um, 
out of their AK, I don't know. Uh, I would I would also say that an AK barrel probably lasts, I don't know, just say on the upward 30, let's just say 30,000 rounds. And I mean, that's not cutting edge accuracy there at the end, but let's say it lasts 30,000 rounds. Well, you're going through at least 10 barrels, probably more. So the real wear, whether it's a a milled receiver or a stamped receiver is going to be on the trunnion. You know, it's going to be on the place where the barrel screws in and out. And can you get that many barrels in and out without, you know, wrecking the thing? And and uh, you know, I would say that it's 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 possible. But you know, what what this is telling us is, for all practical reasons, um, milled and stamped receivers are the same, and they don't really matter. Um, so I would go with that. But yes, there is a perceived quality advantage in a stamp, in a, um, sorry, milled receiver. So I would, um, you know, go there. They're also heavier. And, and to me, the authentic military rifles that they're trying to emulate have all really got stamped receivers, unless you're going with something really early. So I would say no. I would go with the, um, I would say that stamped receivers are just fine, unless you want it want a milled one for some aesthetic reason all right next question is i need a rugged reasonably priced duty style holster what do you recommend well there's only really one thing i do recommend and that is if you want a belt holster it's not a concealment holster but it's a belt holster uh the um84 is a great holster um that's the m12 holster the one that was uh, fielded with the beretta 92 or you know m9 pistol um, they're they're very nice. They're very rugged. They last. You can fit a variety of pistols in there. Any service sized pistol will fit in there, and they work just fine. So I say that's a way to go. Uh, brand new, you can find them for sixty to eighty bucks. And if you go on Flea Bay or some other place, you can find them a little bit less. So there you go. That's what I would recommend. Um, yeah, that's that's it. Okay. Do do do. Is a shoulder holster still a viable way to carry? You know, a shoulder holster is. In fact, uh, when I was going through the uh, the final stages of the red plague, where I was no longer contagious and I actually had to go out and buy food and things because my wife was still sick. You know, she caught it. She caught it after I basically caught it, then I infected her. So she was a couple days behind me, like two days behind me. So she was still really sick, and I had to go out and, you know, buy soup and, and ginger ale and a few things and, and, and all that. So what I would do is I carried an M7 shoulder holster with a 45 automatic cocked and locked under my winter coat because it was cold and I wasn't taking my coat off. And I went into stores and everywhere else, and, and nobody noticed. Now, why did I really do that? Well, I'll tell you. I've got, it's not really any experience, but I've noticed that um, whenever, you know, and I've got a couple of orthopedic deals where I've busted up feet and legs and, and stuff. Um, when I've been like in my boot to, you know, that's resting my broken bones or my ruptured Achilles tendon or whatever, um, I noticed that thugs look at you like your prey if they see that you're less than a hundred percent um they're, they're kind of looking at you making mental notes that hey here's you know here's a pigeon that we can get well in my case they're going to be making a 
the biggest mistake of their lives because I carry and I will use. You know, if some guy thinks he's going to uh, take advantage of me because I'm recovering from sickness or I've got, you know, a cast or a boot on, on a part of my body, hey, you better think about it because, um, you know, try to try to hurt me and I'm going to I'm going to deal. So that's that's why it's good. But yes, I, I mean, they're still viable. Uh, but you, you really have to be, of course, wearing some kind of an overcoat or large coat. A lot better, they work out a lot better in the winter than they do in the summer. I'll leave it there. Okay, here's our last question. If you were in a time machine to World War I and could bring a rifle and pistol, what would you bring? And you have, would have to use 1918 available ammo. Well, that's a that's a question. I think that that came as a uh, question to me that somebody saw that on another. I think they saw that on some other kind of Q and A or something. Um, things like that are just they're they're ridiculous. But I'll I'll play along. Um, if I had to, if I was going back to 1918, could take my own weapons, but it had to use 1918 period ammunition. Um, I would take a the Ohio Gunworks HCAR heavy counter assault rifle uses 30 out six, basically based on BAR mechanicals, which means that uh, on some level I could get parts or parts that could be made to repair if I needed to. Could get magazines, so that would be that's kind of a no brainer. That's that's the one I would I would take um, if I couldn't take that for some reason. Uh, seven. There's nothing really in eight millimeter Mauser I'd really want to take. Uh, although I suppose I could take a Hakim rifle, an Egyptian Hakim in eight millimeter with a, uh, you know, extended magazine. That that would not be too bad. Uh, the other thing I could take would be an FN forty nine in uh, seven millimeter Mauser. Yeah, that's kind of a that's that's kind of kind of using it up right there. I don't I don't think there's too much else out there that uh, you can use because you're limited because there's no intermediate cartridges. There's no yeah, there's no anything else. So it's going to be seven millimeter Mauser, eight millimeter Mauser, or thirty out six. Yeah, that's it. I suppose you could say I would take an SVT forty and. 7.62 by 54R, but you know you got a 10-shot magazine. Got the same problem with the FN, but I think you got a much better rifle with the FN, to be honest. So yeah, you could take an SVT. That'd be the only other option I'd really see. So there you go. Um, G43, yeah, maybe you know those those weren't that great, but you know take it. A uh, pistol would be much more interesting because most of the pistol ammunition around now was around in World War One. So I'm going to be, and I'm not talking about PDW type weapons. I'm talking about straight service handgun. Um, the ones that leap to my mind would be a Czech Scorpion in 32 ACP. That'd be pretty cool. 
because that's also kind of a pocket submachine gun. That or it basically like my favorite 1911. You know, it's got got essentially a Bomar style sight, really rugged, easy to see. And I do have a 10-round magazine for it, which is actually useful. So that would be that'd be a pretty good gun to have. And I could get more magazines and ammo there, obviously. Uh, the other thing would just be any, you know, I would take probably, probably a Beretta 92. Probably a Beretta 92, 9mm. So there you go. That's what I would take. And that's what I would use. So I, I don't know that it would give me a tremendous advantage. Um, the HCAR would probably be pretty cool. Uh, pistol is just a pistol. You know, it's, you know, it's the way it goes. Uh, there hasn't been, you know, the interesting part of that question is there hasn't been that much innovation in pistols, really, that you, you go, oh, wow, you know, um, do you want a, do you want a red dot sight? I don't think so. World War One in the trenches, you're just pulling it out and shooting. You're not making long shots with it. Um, Scorpion, uh, because you could get some full auto fire. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Be pretty good. Um, but there really hasn't been. But look at the Scorpion dates from the fifties, and the kind of the Bomar equipped nineteen eleven is from the seventies, eighties, and Beretta ninety two is from the the eighties. So you know, there you are. That's you. I mean, is a you say take a Glock, you know, because you're in the trenches and you might have mud and you know, okay, what whatever, you know. Um, but there hasn't been that much. I, I would say that running over here, but I, I would I would say that is your nine millimeter handgun going to be, and it, it's generations ahead, but practically for that kind of close encounter where you see somebody you pull out and shoot is is it going to be any better than the luger that the uh, the germans had you know and i would say mm, i don't think so you know it's it's, it's going to be very you're going to be may, basically doing maybe some point shooting the only advantage i can see for the uh, enhanced 1911 is you know that front sight's really big so if you just track the front sight and when you're kind of point doing your point shooting, uh, might be there. But anyway, that's the uh, that's the answer to the question, and that brings to an end the 160th episode of Old School Guns. Again, if you have any questions or comments, email them to me kbmakel at aol.com, or put them in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns out. <laughs>